Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, we're going to go to a listener request. Andrew Fernley reached out on Twitter and asked if I might do an episode about redox flow batteries. That's a topic that I've not ever touched upon in more than 1,200 episodes. So when you come up with a chance to do something, you know, new, you jump on it. So thanks, Andrew. To explain this method of energy storage, I will need to refer to a couple of things I have covered in previous episodes. So maybe not totally new, but this is okay. Let's talk about batteries in general first. Now, I'm not going to go into the history of voltaic piles and their evolution uh, in the to the electrochemical battery of today, because I've actually done episodes on those topics already. But I do need to talk about what is actually going on with a battery, how it generates electricity. The fundamental thing that is happening with a battery is that it is storing chemical energy and then converts that chemical energy into electrical energy. Now, we all know energy cannot be created or destroyed, but you can convert it from one type into another. The classic example of potential energy, you know, you've got a a rock at the top of a hill, transfer that into kinetic energy, you give the rock a little push, and it begins to move, and gravity pulls it downward, and you've got kinetic energy as the rock is moving. So that goes from potential to kinetic. Well, this case, we're talking about chemical to electrical, but still same sort of concept, the conversion of energy from one format to another. Inside a battery are chemicals that undergo a reaction that causes a buildup of electrons. Those electrons gather at the anode. Uh, There are two electrodes on a battery, the anode and the cathode. The anode is the negatively charged end of the battery. It is the end that gives up electrons. So the chemical reaction is between essentially the electrode at the anode end and the electrolyte. But we also know that like charges repel one another, right? Two negative charges are going to repel each other. It's like putting the north end of two different magnets close together and they're going to push against each other. Same sort of thing. So each electron is trying to get away from all the other electrons. It's trying to maintain the ideal amount of space between it and all of its fellow negative Nancys. Now, on the opposite end of the battery is the cathode. This is the positive electrode, the positive charge, due to its own chemical reactions with the electrolyte. Technically, it's drawing in positively charged ions. Uh, Ions are atoms that have a net charge, whether positive or negative. In this case, they are positively charged ions or cations. Opposite charges attract each other, correct? So negative attracts positive and vice versa. So that means the electrons are attracted to that positive side of the of the battery to the cathode end of the battery but unfortunately for these poor little electrons between them and the cathode where they want to go there's mordor no wait sorry I'm, i read that wrong between them is the electrolyte which in this case acts kind of like a really big bouncer who will explain quite convincingly that the electrons are not allowed to cross the line 
In an electrochemical battery, we typically talk about semi-permeable barriers or membranes, and these allow some types of particles to go through, but not others. You can think of it kind of like a filter, except this particular filter isn't based on particle size. Instead, it's based on particle charge. You got a positive charge? Hey, you can come on through, but only in one direction. Are you a negative Nancy, aka an electron? Sorry, can't get in. Boss's orders. So in this analogy, the cathode is like a popular nightclub. And the electrons are folks who really want to get in there where the party is, but the bouncer just won't let them in. But what if there were a side door that was unguarded? Well, then the electrons could take a different path to get inside the nightclub. And that's what happens when a battery is placed into a circuit. The circuit is a path for electrons. And ultimately, the circuit will connect the anode end of a battery to the cathode end of a battery, though it might not be the same battery, depending on how the circuit arranges batteries. We'll talk about putting batteries in series or in parallel in a little bit. So when a path is available, the electrons politely tip their imaginary hats to the electrolyte bouncer, and then they make their way through the circuit to get to that positively charged cathode nightclub where the electrons will rejoin chemicals and another reaction will occur. The technical term for this type of chemical reaction, in which there is an exchange of electrons, is a reduction-oxidation reaction. And we can actually look at those chemical reactions at the two electrodes that we talked about earlier as the two halves of this reduction-oxidation reaction. Reduction refers to gaining electrons, that sounds counterintuitive, I understand, because typically you don't refer to something gaining anything as a reduction. But in this case, it's because we're talking about the electric charges here, not subatomic particles. We're talking about the reduction of electric charge going more negative, which would happen when you take on an electron. So the component is accepting electrons and it undergoes a reduction in electric charge. Technically, it goes from more positive to typically neutral. Oxidation refers to giving up electrons. When an element oxidizes, it is losing electrons. So when iron oxidizes, it rusts. And if you break off tiny pieces of iron, they oxidize so quickly in the atmosphere, and that chemical reaction gives off so much heat, it is an exothermic reaction, you end up with sparks. There is a faster way to say reduction-oxidation reactions, and that would be redox. So that gives you a hint that we're going to be coming back to this when we move on to redox flow batteries. But we've got a little bit more finishing up to do with classical batteries first. Now, typically, the circuit the electrons must travel through isn't just an open path. We expect those electrons to do some work along the way. And the electrons don't really care about that. They just want to get to that sweet cathode nightclub. So we tell each electron, hey, buddy, I'm going to let you in, but first I'm going to need your help to light this light bulb or power this radio or, I don't know, give my Captain Kirk realistic figurine with real Gorn punching action the ability to hit that jab. And the electrons do this, always with the goal of getting through it to the cathode nightclub. Doing work is hard, but getting past the electrolyte bouncer is physically impossible. I mean, in the real sense of the word physics, though I guess I really should use chemistry. At least the electrons will do the work if they have the energy necessary 
to do that work. So let's say that in our analogy, the work that the electrons have to do is to lift a very heavy weight. And the electrons all have the same amount of energy or weightlifting ability, but collectively their ability is not enough to move that heavy weight. They can't budge it. Well, in that case, the battery will fail to power the circuit. The electrons will not make that journey after all. It's almost as if they ran into a second bouncer. So the energy that the electrons have is dependent upon the standard potential between the cathode and the anode. That is, how great is the difference between the negative charge on one side and the positive charge on the other side? The greater the difference, the greater the potential between the two. This gives us the battery's overall electrochemical potential, and that in turn determines the voltage of the battery. Voltage is akin to pressure. How much force is there in the system pushing those electrons along? The force determines whether or not electrons flow. If there's not enough voltage, the electrons won't move. If there's a lot of voltage, they're going to move toot sweet. So if the weight is too heavy, if the load on the circuit is too great, then it's going to require greater force or voltage to do that work with the same amount of electrons. Alternatively, you might be able to do that work if you had more electrons, a larger volume of electrons moving through at that lower voltage. This would be a description of current or amperage, but one or the other needs to go up if the electrons are going to be able to move that weight to, to power that load on the circuit. There needs to either be more of the electrons or they need to be pushed harder or, you know, both. It all depends on what the circuit can handle and things like that. So you can have a high voltage and a low amperage, which means you've got a lot of pressure behind a relatively small volume of electrons. Or you could have low voltage and high amperage in which a relatively small amount of force is moving a relatively large volume of electrons. Or you could have any combination. So your typical household batteries have a voltage of 1.5, and these would be your classic AA or AAA batteries, for example. They're all at 1.5 volts. Okay, but let's say you've got a job, and it's going to be too much for the battery to handle based on that battery's voltage. What are your options? Well, you could use a different type of battery if your system allowed for that, a battery that had greater electrochemical potential between the two electrodes, but the other option is to stack the batteries together in series. This has an additive effect on the battery's voltage. Now, if you were to connect the batteries in parallel instead of in series, so in series you can think of them as one right behind the other in parallel, they're all kind of linked up in their own individual pathways into the main circuit. Well, if you go in parallel, you increase the amperage, you increase the current, but not the voltage. So it all depends on what you need to do. Now, some batteries can only do this process one time through, all the way through. So once the cathode nightclub gets full of enough electrons, it will lose its positive charge. The, the electrochemical potential between the anode and the cathode will decrease. Uh, the population of electrons at the anode entrance of the nightclub will diminish. And so... Even if you have a pathway that gives electrons a free and clear entry point to the cathode with no load to, to work, it won't matter because there won't be enough electric potential difference for there to be any voltage, to be any flow of current. So essentially the cathode nightclub has reached kind of a neutral charge and no electrons are going to want to go there now because 
It's some lame spot no one cares about. The battery is dead, and it needs to be discarded, or preferably recycled. But other batteries are rechargeable, and putting them into a charger means that you're actually introducing an incoming electric current into the battery, and it forces this reaction to reverse itself. The electrons will bail on the cathode nightclub and return to the anode end. And when you remove the battery from the charger, it's back to where it was before you used it the first time. Mostly. Typically, rechargeable batteries recapture only a percentage of the full charge they once held, which in our analogy would mean some of those electrons were just too much in the groove in the cathode nightclub, so they didn't leave when everyone else got kicked out. So over time, even a rechargeable battery will lose its ability to store energy. The electrochemical potential will become too low for the battery to do any useful work. I mean, you might be able to hook it up to a meter and say, yes, technically current is flowing, but it's at such a small amperage that it's not useful for anything. I can't do it to light a light bulb or whatever. So that's your classic battery. There's another energy storage method we should cover as well, as it's going to be useful when we talk about redox flow batteries, and that would be fuel cells. Fuel cells are similar to, but distinct from, batteries. Sir William Robert Grove, a Welsh judge, generally gets credit for inventing the first fuel cell, all the way back in 1839. I guess this tells us that Welsh judges had a lot of spare time on their hands in the mid-19th century. Basically, Sir Willie found out that by mixing hydrogen and oxygen in the presence of an electrolyte would end up with some interesting byproducts. He would get water, you know, good old H2O, two hydrogens to one oxygen, and electricity. But this particular incarnation of a fuel cell, while interesting, wasn't practical because it wasn't producing enough electricity to do anything of use. However, we're going to skip way ahead. Fuel cells, like batteries, convert chemical energy into electric energy. There are many different kinds, but the ones you and I would most likely encounter are those that use hydrogen and oxygen, much like Sir William's fuel cell from more than a century ago. In a fuel cell, you've essentially got a couple of chambers separated by a semi-permeable membrane. In one chamber, you pump in hydrogen. And in the other chamber, you pump in oxygen. The semi-permeable membrane is an electrolyte, typically paired with a catalyst. And a catalyst is something that facilitates a reaction. It doesn't cause a reaction on itself, but it makes reactions easier. It reduces the, the uh, energy requirement for a reaction to happen. So the hydrogen atoms, which consist of one electron and one proton, that's a hydrogen atom, they react with this electrolyte and the catalyst. This causes the hydrogen atoms to say bon voyage to that electron. So you get a positively charged hydrogen ion, or the, uh, the cation, and that would be the positive hydrogen. Uh, anions are the negatively charged ions, thus like cathode and anode. And we have another word for hydrogen ions, that would be a proton, because that's all a hydrogen nucleus really is. It's one proton, so a positively charged subatomic particle. The semi-permeable membrane allows the proton to pass through it, but not the electron. So like our previous example, the electrons really want to get to that other side of the membrane because that's where a positive charge exists. So you can connect the fuel cell to a circuit, and the electrons will travel through that path and 
head toward the opposite chamber and they'll do work. They'll do work on an electric load along the way. How much depends, again, upon the electrochemical potential between the two electrodes, the anode and the cathode. And then they'll get over to where all the oxygen and hydrogen uh, uh, nuclei, the protons, those cations, all happen to be. Now, I have a little bit more to say about fuel cells, but before I get into that, let's take a quick break. So before we left off, I mentioned that the hydrogen in a fuel cell gets stripped of its electron. The hydrogen cation, or, or proton, passes through this semi-permeable membrane. The electron goes through a circuit, doing work along the way, before finally making its way to the other chamber in the fuel cell. In that opposite chamber, the protons, electrons, and oxygen combine to form water. This is also an exothermic reaction, meaning it gives off heat. So your byproducts of this reaction are electricity, heat, and water. The fuel cell only generates electricity so long as there is hydrogen and oxygen, aka the fuel that's in the cell. And that means that once it runs out of those, you have to refuel it. This is not something that just stays contained within the fuel cell. You're refueling it just as you would have to refuel something like a car. You'd have to top it off. And it is a clean process within the fuel cell itself because the byproduct is pure water. People have advocated for fuel cells to replace stuff like gasoline or diesel-powered vehicles. So what's stopping us? What is in the way of doing that? Well, there are a few challenges, and one is that hydrogen is actually not that easy to come by. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, we know hydrogen is the most plentiful stuff in the universe, so you'd figure it'd be the easiest stuff in the world to get hold of. But hydrogen also tends to bond with other stuff. In its pure form, hydrogen is a gas, and it's lighter than air, so it floats off beyond our reach. We typically get hydrogen through some other process, which involves breaking the molecular bonds that hold hydrogen to other elements. But that means you have to actually pour energy into this process in order to get to the hydrogen. You have to break those molecular bonds that requires using energy. So to swap out to a hydrogen-based system, you have to take that part into account. Now, if it turns out you're using more energy to get the hydrogen than you would get energy by harnessing that hydrogen, you're playing a losing game, right? If you're spending more energy just to get the fuel than you are being able to use the fuel, why are you doing that? You should just choose some other method. Or if the method you're using to break those molecular bonds doesn't depend upon an environmentally friendly method, then really you're just shifting pollution to a different part of the system. Now, you can get hydrogen out of water by running an electric current through the water. In fact, this is essentially the same process we see in fuel cells, but in reverse, right? Because in fuel cells, we see hydrogen and oxygen binding together, and the byproduct in this is electricity and some heat. By running an electric current through water, we can break up oxygen and hydrogen, and you know we break that molecular bond. So again... Same process, but in reverse. It's actually called electrolysis. But in order to do that, you have to have access to suitable water. You need a clean method to generate electricity. Maybe you use solar power or wind power. And all of this starts raising questions about 
Why would you not just use solar or wind power directly? Though you couldn't really do that for like an onboard system on a car. And the counter argument is that you still have to have a way to store energy. Fuel cells could be a way to help store energy. But there are other challenges besides the access to hydrogen. Another big one is that most fuel cells have a band of temperatures within which they can operate. And if you get outside that band of temperatures, if you go too high or too low, the fuel cell will not perform as well, and it might even suffer damage, which means it'll have a much shorter life cycle anyway. Most fuel cells don't operate very well below a certain threshold temperature. The specific temperature threshold really depends upon the type of fuel cell. And this makes them a little less reliable if you want to, I don't know, have a fuel cell powered car in Alaska in the middle of winter. The temperatures can actually get low enough where it's below the real operating temperatures for that fuel cell, and it might even do damage to the fuel cell's membrane. So this is a tricky problem to get around. And yet another challenge is that many fuel cells rely on rare and expensive materials to act as catalysts, such as platinum. And yet another challenge is that many fuel cells rely on rare and expensive materials to act as catalysts, such as platinum. Platinum is expensive stuff, and that drives up the cost of manufacturing. As much as I wish we could all ignore the impact of money, we can't. If you have two ways to store energy, and one is relatively cheap, but environmentally it's harmful, the other is expensive but has no real negative environmental impact, some people, perhaps most people, are going to go with the less expensive option, even though in the long run you could argue that it's more expensive. And to have a true hydrogen-based economy, you would also have to invest in building out a new infrastructure, which can run into the billions of dollars, so it's another big challenge. Also, I should point out that while the actual chemical reaction within a hydrogen-based fuel cell is a clean one, there can be other factors that cause a negative environmental impact, including the mining methods that you have to rely on to get the materials for the catalyst. You always have to take a big picture look at these things and not just look at the mechanism of the fuel cell itself. You gotta look at the whole ecosystem and say, does this make more sense than fossil fuels? I would argue it does, but you have to take the whole picture into account before you can actually say something like that. And I'm not saying all of this to completely dismiss fuel cells, because I happen to love fuel cell technology. But I also believe we have to acknowledge the obstacles that are in our way if we ever are to have a hope of surmounting those obstacles. Now, Let's finally move on to redox flow batteries. Now, luckily, with the grounding we have in traditional batteries and with fuel cells, we can tackle this concept a bit more easily. Lawrence H. Thaler filed a patent for an electrically rechargeable redox flow cell back in 1975. The patent office in the United States granted that patent the following year. The abstract gives us a really useful starting point, so I'm going to read it in full. Also, this patent expired in 1993, so this is about as fair use as it gets, but here's the abstract. There is disclosed a bulk energy storage system, including an electrically rechargeable reduction oxidation, redox, cell, divided into two compartments by a membrane, each compartment containing an electrode. 
An anode fluid is directed through the first compartment at the same time that a cathode fluid is directed through the second compartment, thereby causing the electrode in the first compartment to have a negative potential, while the electrode in the second compartment has a positive potential. The electrodes are inert with respect to the anode and cathode fluids used, and the membrane is substantially impermeable to all except select ions of both the anode and cathode fluid, whether the cell is fully charged or in a state of discharge. Means are provided for circulating the anode and cathode fluids, and the electrodes are connected to an intermittent or non-continuous electrical source, which, when operating, supplies current to a load as well as to the cell to recharge it. Ancillary circuitry is provided for disconnecting the intermittent source from the cell at prescribed times and for circulating the anode and cathode fluids according to desired parameters and conditions. And that's the abstract. Now, I'm sure a lot of you out there are way up to speed with what's going on, but for those of us like me who find the language of patents to be a teensy bit difficult to parse, let's break it down. And we're going to start with the core, the cell of this flow battery, where the electricity gets generated. This core has two compartments, each with its own electrode. One electrode, the anode, is the negative terminal, the other, the cathode, is the positive terminal, and this is just like a battery or a fuel cell. A liquid electrolyte pumps into each side of the core. In between the two compartments is a membrane separates the two cores. In between the two compartments is a membrane that separates those two compartments, right? It's right there in the middle. And it allows certain ions, certain charged particles, to pass through, but not electrons. These compartments connect to respective electrolyte tanks, so big reservoirs, and the tanks hold the positive or negatively charged ions. Pumps on either side take the respective electrolyte from the respective tank and pump it into the respective compartment in the cell. And then within the cell, the ion exchange can happen across the membrane. The anode side, or the analyte, because that's anode plus electrolyte, releases electrons in this process, which then can go on and do work in a circuit before joining the cathode plus electrolyte on the other side. The respective liquid electrolytes now continue to move out of the cell and back into their various tanks. However, this means that the electrolytes are now chemically different because of that ion and electron exchange. They're no longer the same ions that they were when they were being pumped into the cell and having that exchange, right? Now they're inert, at least with respect to each other. They no longer will have that reaction. You won't have that electrochemical potential where that exchange could happen again. So let's say you've pumped through the entire supply of electrolyte through both tanks. You know, it's been pumped all the way through and refilled, and now we've got these inert electrolytes. You would eventually find you are no longer producing any electricity because enough of the electrolyte has gone through this exchange that the electric potential between the cathode and anode is no longer sufficient for that to continue. So it's kind of like having a dead battery. However, this process can be reversed just as with a rechargeable battery. So if you pour the electricity into the system, you cause the reverse of this chemical reaction. You recharge the electrolytes that are on either side, that are in either compartment. 
So that once again, you have negatively charged electrolyte on the anode side and positively charged electrolyte on the cathode side. And you would pump these electrolytes through the cell. Uh, they would get recharged. Then they would go back into their tanks. So you're gradually recharging all the electrolyte that are in either tank until you're back up to full capacity. This reminds us that Batteries are not a source of energy. They are a form of energy storage. We have to put energy into them in order to get energy out. So we're not like mining electricity here. And now we're getting into how these batteries might be used. So let's say you've got a farm of solar panels and they're generating electricity. It's a bright sunny day and they're generating electricity like gangbusters. That electricity needs to either be put to work immediately or it has to be stored, otherwise it goes to waste. And this is true of any method of generating electricity, by the way, not just with solar panels, but with traditional power plants. Our power plants try to match production to meet demand, but sometimes demand is low, such as, say, in the middle of the night when most folks sleep, and the power plants then have options. They can try and store excess energy in some other form, in some other solution, so that it doesn't just go to waste. One way of doing this is through hydro pumping. And I want to describe this because there's some analogies between hydro pumping and redox flow batteries. Hydro pumping is a fairly simple idea. Let's imagine that you've got two reservoirs of water, but one is at a higher elevation than the other. So it's up a hill. From the higher reservoir, you have a tunnel. This is called the intake tunnel. That tunnel leads down into a powerhouse under the ground, and that powerhouse contains a turbine that water can turn. So water flowing down due to gravity hits this turbine, and the force of it causes the turbine to rotate. This powers an electrical generator, generating electricity, as the name implies. The water then continues to flow out a second tunnel, the discharge tunnel, and this tunnel empties out into the lower reservoir. So effectively, water is just flowing downhill, right? It's coming from an upper reservoir down through a tunnel, happens to have to do some work along the way, and then continues down till it hits the lower reservoir. It just needs gravity to work. But to recharge the system, the powerhouse turbine has to actually be activated. We have to pour energy into it and turn the turbine in the opposite direction. Now it's acting like a pump and it forces water from the lower reservoir and pumps it up against gravity into the upper reservoir. So when a power plant is generating more electricity than the current demand requires, it could send that excess electricity over to the hydro pump station. The hydro pump station activates and begins to pump water from the lower reservoir into the upper reservoir, and then they have that energy stored. But if the power plant ends up seeing a demand for electricity that exceeds its own ability to produce electricity, the hydro pump can jump into action and it can open up those tunnels and allow gravity to have water turn a generator and thus you get to augment the power plant's capability of producing electricity. So again, it's just storing energy. Well, the same sort of thing is happening with the redox flow batteries and for much the same purpose. Except instead of using gravity and kinetic energy to provide what we need, we're talking about an electrochemical process. We're still using pumps to circulate liquid electrolyte from reservoirs through an electric cell, but 
we discharge the redox flow battery by having this ion exchange, and the active elements in these reservoirs begins to reduce, and we recharge by reversing the process. We pump electricity back into the battery to recharge the respective electrolytes so that the tanks are full of active components. The capacity of a redox flow battery depends upon the size of those tanks. The electrochemical potential of a redox flow battery will always depend upon the specific electrolytes being used. It doesn't matter if you have more or less of them. So you choose your electrolytes, that's going to determine that electrochemical potential. So in other words, that determines what the voltage of your battery is going to be. And it doesn't matter if you have small tanks full of the stuff or big tanks full of the stuff. The difference is that the size of the tank determines the capacity, the amount of energy overall that it can store. And that depends not just on the size of the tank, but also on which electrolytes you choose. Some uh, electrolyte pairings are more energy dense than others. Some are more energy dense, but much more toxic, or they're more expensive, or both. So there are a lot of different considerations you have to make when you're choosing your electrolytes, but the size of the tanks, you're really just limited by, you know, your facility. And if you have the facility to make a truly enormous pair of tanks, then you've got a battery that's got an enormous capacity to store energy. They're not going to release that energy all at once, but it's going to store a lot of it. And like traditional batteries, you can actually connect redox flow batteries in series. So you can create a higher voltage that way too. Instead of having to swap out what electrolytes you plan on using, you could just make a series of these redox flow batteries and get a higher voltage by connecting them that way. Now, when we come back, I'll talk a bit more about some of the types of electrolytes used in these redox flow batteries, since again, it determines the voltage, as well as the use cases for the batteries and some recent advancements in that technology. But first, let's take a quick break. So from the moment they were first invented in the late 60s and then patented in the 70s to present day, the choice of which materials to use as the anode and cathode electrolytes have guided the evolution of the redox flow battery. Early redox flow batteries included a zinc-chlorine pairing. Chlorine is incredibly dangerous stuff. Zinc-bromine, later zinc-cerium batteries were used. Vanadium-based redox flow batteries have been used and lots of others. And they have a range of capabilities when it comes to stuff like electrochemical potential, energy density, power density, toxicity, cost, and recycling. Uh, recycling, by the way, I don't mean to recycle the materials, but rather how many recharge cycles does this battery have? How many times can you charge it back up to full and discharge it in full and not lose any uh, energy storage capacity? Rarer elements are obviously more expensive. That's kind of a given. And some of these are actually more like hybrid style redox flow batteries, which require some extra components, or they include specially treated electrodes where one of the two electrodes has uh, elements on it that make it either the anode or the cathode. Uh, the zinc ones also have to contend with the tendency for zinc to coat the electrodes. You get a uh, uh, almost like an electroplating, but it's of zinc. And if that happens enough, then the electrodes become less effective. They're no longer able to transmit uh, electrons. So you eventually have to strip those plates of that zinc coating. 
More recently, researchers with the University of Southern California announced that they were working on a redox flow battery that uses an iron sulfate solution. And that is super cheap to get hold of because it's a byproduct from the mining industry. It's essentially waste. So the other component in this particular approach is an acid called, and stick with me guys, anthraquinone disulfonic acid. And I'm sure I messed that up, but it's AQDS is how everyone refers to it because no one wants to say that name. Now, one major advantage of this entire approach that the University of Southern California researchers have suggested is cost because the components are plentiful and they are inexpensive. So it brings down the cost per kilowatt hour of uh, providing electricity using this method. And that's a big deal. Now, in addition, these batteries, again, have different cycle capacities. So that whole discharge-recharge cycle. Redox flow batteries typically have hundreds or thousands of cycles, uh, sometimes between 10 and 20,000 cycles, which means that you can use the same supply of liquid electrolytes over and over. In fact, some people say that they effectively have an indefinite number of recharge cycles it's really the other components that you have to frequently swap out. Like you'll eventually have to replace the pumps or you may have to replace the electrodes or the membrane, but that the electrolyte fluids for a very long time will just be stable. The redox flow battery is good for the load balancing applications that I mentioned earlier with power grids and compared to some other battery technologies like lead acid or lithium ion batteries, Redox flow batteries tend to have lower power and energy densities. They can't hold as much, but they work well with large applications like power grids and they scale, right? So there's a balance there. However, the requirements of the redox flow battery are such that they are not good for smaller applications, which you could easily imagine, right? You're not going to have these for your cell phone. They're not good for portable or tiny applications. The requirement of the reservoir tanks means this tech does not scale down well. You would want this for large stationary applications. So you could pair it with stuff like green or energy technologies, like I had mentioned before the break, like a solar panel farm. Because with wind power or solar power, redox flow batteries can help balance out the natural drawbacks of those methods. We know the sun doesn't shine all the time because that slacker takes practically every single night off. Nor does the wind always blow. So using energy storage to help balance the load during times where you cannot easily produce electricity directly is critical. You need some way to store the energy when you're producing a lot of it, and some way to release the energy when you're not able to produce it. And that's really one of the key elements for going with a renewable green energy source. Bringing the cost down on that energy storage makes renewable energy solutions much more viable. It's a, it's a key component of doing that. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have a renewable method to generate electricity and you have one that relies on, say, fossil fuels, and you've got a pretty high price tag for your renewable energy, it's hard to get a lot of people to switch or maybe hard to get large power companies to switch. After all, the economically viable option is to go with the lower cost so you get higher return. You don't want to spend more money and make less money, at least not 
from the perspective of business. If we take that from a perspective of environmental impact, there's a different argument to be made. But we have to remember, we live in the real world where all of these factors are playing a part. Making the whole enterprise economically advantageous, by enterprise I mean renewable energy, that's a huge move. And we're starting to see it already. I mean, we've already seen the price of energy production through renewable uh, technologies to come down significantly to the point where it's actually very competitive with fossil fuels, in some cases more advantageous. And having this component, the energy storage component, be part of that is critical. But that's pretty much all I have to say about redox flow batteries. To get into more detail would really just involve talking about the specific ion exchanges with each pairing of electrolyte materials, which would become a chemistry lesson, uh, or talking about how much energy those individual electrolytes hold per unit of volume and how expensive they are, which would become sort of a cost-benefit analysis of the different types of electrolytes. And really, I'm not keen to do either of those things. But the important things we've covered, the, the basic technology of it. So you're not likely to encounter a flow battery for home use, but some large buildings might take advantage of one as part of a load balancing uh, strategy or a backup generator strategy. Uh, more likely, power plants or renewable energy facilities will use them, as I've said, but you never know. But I do think it's a pretty interesting technology, uh, one that relates very closely to those others that I mentioned before, but is different enough where I thought it was cool to really tackle it. If you guys have any suggestions for me to cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a specific technology, maybe it's a company or a person in tech, maybe it's just a trend in tech that you want to know more about, let me know. You can reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook. The handle for both of those is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 